Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, a human by mistake, broadcaster, truth teller, truth seeker, raging mentor, Tavis Smiley is with us. Welcome. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film. And weekly, we come to you live here at WHUPLP for Murmur. We're uh, available evergreen all the time on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Uh, we have a website, murmurradio.com. Uh, email is murmurradio at gmail.com. Social media, Twitter is at msfmurmur.com. And if that wasn't enough dot-coms for you, we have modernschoolfilm.com. We are going to be on the road. It's worth mentioning to you if you're listening, if you pick up the show and are listening to us based in the Boston, New England area, we will be in uh, Boston March 1st at the Sinclair Theater talking to uh, Glenn Hansard about movies and music. Uh, He's bringing his guitar. We're going to talk to him about movies and play a few songs. Uh, The event is called In Pictures. In Pictures is a a series we do, what I call a terrestrial series, we do uh, where we talk to smart people about their movie influences. So March 1st, we'll be in Boston at the Sinclair Theater. Glenn Hansard, you can, uh, if you're interested, there are tickets available through modernschoolfilm.com. There are also tickets available through uh, boweryboston.com, March 1st. Glenn Hansard, see you there. Come say hi. Hello. (laughs) You could say hi now. Uh, Today, Tavis Smiley is with us. Uh, We've done, speaking of uh, live events, we've done live events with Tavis. He's he's one of the great uh, speakers, interlocutors, uh, tennis, verbal tennis partners one can find. Uh, I'm a big fan of him from from afar, but up close, even more so. He's just a great guy. And I, I love any opportunity to get to speak with people who speak with people. I'm curious about my own desire to want to speak to people and ask questions professionally. Uh, So when we get a chance to talk to Tavis, someone who does it professionally as well, uh, on such a high level for such a long time, it's a gift. It's literally like scrimmaging with the varsity. (laughs) You know, it's that feeling when the varsity wants you, hey, uh, can you scrimmage with us today? Yeah. When, where, let us know. So Tavis is with us today. It brings up... uh, the question that doesn't need much exhuming for me, and that is, why ask questions of anyone? This professional path that I'm on right now, which is uh, asking questions, and it's a byproduct of what I've always done throughout my life, which is ask questions. I've been, curiosity has always been part of me. And uh, I'm exceedingly curious about very basic things. 
as if I consider myself a teacher, I think a teacher has to consider him or herself a student as well. And a student, by definition, has to want to know something. And one who wants to know something is curious about something. So all those dominoes trip for me. When I sit down and talk to someone, and I've, d- I've been very fortunate to do this now, uh, less than five years, which isn't a long amount of time compared to someone like Tavis, certainly, but it's not a really long amount of time temporarily. It's such a... The journey of it is really fascinating and not fascinating, <laughs> as many things based in media are, both fascinating and actually remarkably unfascinating. I don't know if that's a word, but let's let it stay there. Uh, I wonder, you know, guests, people ask me a lot, who are the favorite people you've interviewed and talked to? And I don't answer that question precisely because I think it, it really is unfair to all of the guests or all of the people I've had the fortune of speaking with. So I really don't, it's not a high-minded reservation I hold. I just, it's just, just, I'll never be able to answer that question adequately. And that the answer usually spirals off into different moments in time where I've had different guests and that sort of thing. But to, to, you know, I know we're in this listicle nation now and we want to know the top 10 of everything, the Yelp listicle nation, the clickhole nation. But I don't think of the backstory that way. I think each guest and each experience brings me forward to the next one. And again, having Tavis today, someone I've spoken to before, I could speak to Tavis every day. I mean, there's always something to talk about. So it's not that kind of thing. This is never one and done. It's it's just, it's an anthology it's an it's anthological and that's sort of how film music you know when you think of musicians and think of filmmakers their career is anthological uh so to to isolate one or two the more i do them the, the 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 more useless that becomes and i've never done it but i do wonder there is a there is a push pull for me when i speak to someone because i i wonder usually afterwards, rarely during, but afterwards when I kind of meditate on what I do and why I do it, I wonder, what am I trying to get at? Am I trying to learn something? Am I trying to get to know someone? Am I trying to get to know to a piece of information, a kind of abstract piece of information or an isolated piece of information? I rarely like to tread space that's been treaded before, and it's impossible not to. But I, I think one of the things the modern school film has done, and I've been able to do, is is talk about the ob- the outside object, and and knowing and getting to know that guest. So in pursuing an outside object as a question, or a question as an outside object, we get to know something. We being myself and people who absorb the content. That's part and parcel to what I do. But I I think there's part of it that is a bit of a emotional wrestling match for me and that's the humanity of it because it's it's sort of the actor syndrome you know when you're young and you watch actors act in movies and you see them kissing or having sex or holding hands you wonder how can emotion not be transmitted uh and you know obviously <laughs> for actors at times it is <laughs> there have been love affairs and sexual I, I, I'm guessing there have been a few sexual encounters that have been derived from on-screen uh, interaction. Uh, I think of it as sort of like a, a leash. You know, when you walk a dog, the emotion you ha- carry as a person when you're walking that dog is transmitted down the leash, presumably. At least I think, and, and I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not alone in that thought. So I wonder how much emotional energy is... Being manifested now, the obstacle. Let's look at the obstacles to the, the the humanity of of interviewing or talking to someone. And I hate the word interview, and I know Tavis does too. I, I consider them discussions. I go that go into them with discussions. I don't have questions I want to ask. I have thoughts I want to bring up, but I'm I'm I don't look at it that way because the most interesting guests for me are people who come on with no reason. You know, guests who come on in a promotional cycle are genuinely less interesting and probably less interested in talking. Uh, So even when a guest is in a promotional cycle, which we're very grateful to be part of that promotional cycle, we try to, or at least I try to 
get at something else, put a little top spin on, on the forehand. That said, the, so the emotional obstacle is that the guest see, doesn't see your humanity, so won't, won't disclose their humanity. And that's when what we do falls into the J word, which is journalism. And I think artists typically don't trust journalists because what they say, though may be true and on the record, may, may also, quote unquote, be taken out of context. You know, athletes talk about that a lot. Oh, I was taken out of context. And that's, that's just a really unsatisfying bomb, B-A-L-M, for information that's uh, less than um, unwa- unwanted information. You know, it's sort of a faux pas. A, a, a conversational faux pas becomes a manner of uh, co- out of context. But it's also for a journalist or for a, a re- writer or someone who works in the M word, media, the truth is when those nuggets come out or when something new comes out, that usually becomes the part of the sell, like what you sell in terms of promotion. You know, there's the P word, promotion, the other P word. So I understand the guest's reluctance at times to relate, to to allow trust, trust into the environment. So I try to, well, I don't know what I try to do, but I do think trust goes both ways. If I, if they trust me, if I, they trust me. I'll trust them. I guess what's what I try to do is establish this thing where I want them to trust me. But trust is is there's different forms of trust. There's intellectual trust. Oh, this person knows what they're doing. That's intellectual trust. Or I like this person. That's a kind of personal trust. So trust is definitely a tool, not a cudgel, to getting information or at least getting. At, Truth is that it? Am I trying to get a truth? I, I'm I'm more interested in information. I don't think I can ever know someone else's truth. I assume. I assume both people are telling the absolute truth and are lying because it's hard. You know, once it comes out of the guest's mouth, it's no longer truth. It's something else. But internally, it may be a truth. So I'm trying to get it. I'm assuming that the, everything is a truth and a lie, and that's you know Orson Welles said famously, everything you're about to see is a tr- is true and a lie. And that's, you know, what film is, certainly. And that's what I think this is. So I'm not trying to get a truth. I'm trying to get an information. But also my form of discourse is not news breaking. It's information as a tool. It's not this just in, this happened. Now, sometimes we do things on this show, Murmur, that become entertainment news. You know, we had Adam Reed on the show, uh, the creator of Archer, and he said something that became news in Variety. I didn't think it was earth shattering. He didn't either, but it became news. So I understand that there's definitely a, a softer place culturally for what we do, but now cultural news or artistic news, entertainment news has become hard news. So swirl this round and round and round. I think the one thing I can disclose is of all the people I speak to, I rarely, if ever, carry on a personal relationship with them. I'm not talking about an intimate relationship. I'm talking about a friendship. You know, I don't go to, I haven't gone to a baseball game with anyone that I've interviewed. I I wouldn't mind it. I just think that there's a, there's a level of, this is that other P word, a performance level that this achieves. So I think when you're operating in in the arena of performance or when surgeon surgery becomes performance then it's never either it's never surgery completely and it's never performance completely so there's you're left with ambiguity and with ambiguity it becomes harder to trust it certainly it it just simply does so i don't take it personally which is maybe not true. I, I think this is another totem of what we do in entertain, not only in entertainment, but also in, in walks of life. Don't take it personally. I'm happy to not take it personally, but I think one of the casualties of not taking resistance personally, it's also hard to take compliments personally. Uh, to me, I'm either going to believe it or not. Um, but it's not the truth. We can believe in things other than the truth, and I'm not talking about alternative facts. I'm talking about information. Information is up for us to take in, 
and process in our own way. Next subject, Kowalski Leon, engineer waste disposal. File section, new employee, six days. Calling Mr. Weber, please refer to zone A, sector nine. Replication section, level nine. We have a B1 security alert. Stand by for ID check. Sit down. Care if I talk? You're kind of nervous when I take tests. I just please don't move. I'm sorry. I already had an IQ test this year. I don't think I've ever had the one. Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Now answer as quickly as you can. Sure. 1187 Hunter Varser. That's the hotel. What? Where I lived. Nice place? Yeah, sure, I guess. Is that part of the test? No. Just warming you up, that's all. Huh. It's not fancy or anything. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look down... What? What desert? It doesn't make any difference. What desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? You know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing. Never seen a turtle. But I understand what you mean. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back, Leon. Do you make up these questions, Mr. Holden? Or do they write them down for you? The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. What do you mean, I'm not helping? I mean, you're not helping. Why is that, Leon? They're just questions, Leon. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response. Shall we continue? Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind. About your mother? A mother? Yeah. Let me tell you about my mother. Bill Parcells uh, took over the Dallas Cowboys, um, the football coach, Bill Parcells. Uh, he was asked, why did you uh, want to coach the Cowboys? Uh, Parcells said, um, it's like if you go to Las Vegas. There are acts in the lounge. 
and then there are acts in the big room where Elvis and the big names played. The Dallas Cowboys are the big room. Well, today we enter the big room. Um, he's interviewed everyone from Castro to Clinton, Muhammad Ali to Spike Lee, artists, painters, planners, innovators, technicians. He has 15 honorary degrees, uh, and he has a store on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. We'll forgive him that for now. Um, overall, this is not bad for a man, uh, one of 10 kids growing up in a trailer in Gulfport, Mississippi. You know, the great philosopher once said, there is a world of righteous mentors available to each of us. We can adopt them. We can live with them through their words. We can communicate with them as surely as we can communicate with our parents and our friends. That philosopher is Tavis Smiley. I'm not so bold as to call him um, a colleague yet, but he's definitely a righteous mentor. And to me, in my mind, he's a friend. Uh, Today, we're going to do something with him he hates doing. Uh, being on the other side of this podium. Please welcome to Murmur and back to the Modern School of Film, Professor Tavis Smiley. Hey, Robert, how are you? I'm well. You know, it's always an honor to talk to you. I, I do consider you, as as you said, one of these righteous mentors of mine. Uh, and you're definitely the only reason I put on Fox News occasionally. You're, <laughs> when you're on there. Yeah, occasionally is all I, all I can handle. Go on, yeah, it's all I can handle, frankly, yeah. Well, i got to say, you know, you go on there and, and you prove to me what you always are, and it's a thoughtful, interlocutor, and a sort of neutral philosopher. (laughs) And I want to define philosophy with you in a second, but how would you describe your job? What is your job? Not not your work. If we can parse it, what's your job? Yeah, I um, I, I always try to get young people. I was just giving a talk at a college the other day, and I try to make a distinction between a job and your vocation a job and your purpose, a job and your calling. So so that my avocation I think ultimately is trying to trying to love and serve people by seeking the truth, speaking the truth, standing on the truth and staying with the truth. That's what life is about for me, seeking the truth, speaking the truth, standing on it and staying with it. So for me, I am constantly in a search for truth, which does not mean that I have a monopoly on the truth. I'm too 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 smart to um, you know, to to fall for this this notion that that that, that my truth is the truth, right. um, so that there is the truth and there's the way to the truth, and I'm constantly in search of, on my way to, getting at deeper truths. But I think ultimately we have an obligation, a duty to 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 share the truth that we know. Somebody has to speak the truth, and somebody's got to stand on the truth. And so that that lesson to me is more important now than ever before. So you know, in this moment particularly. We need more truth tellers, but that's that's kind of how I see my work trying to trying to tell people truths that will cause them to reexamine the assumptions they hold, truths that will help them expand their inventory of ideas, truths that will help them see the world through a different prism. When does that bell ring for you, Tavis? When when do you say this is the truth? You know, and let's let's take opinion out of it. Let's take that word out of it, which is a sticky word. But when do you say I've arrived at the truth? Now let me communicate that to you? When does that bell ring for you? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a great question. It, it, it takes research. Um, it takes, it takes um, understanding. It takes testing um, one idea against another. Um, but ultimately, what it comes down to for me is that I still believe, although there's so much evidence to the contrary, I still believe that as human beings, we still have innately a basic sense of what's right and what's wrong. Mm. And that's why I said earlier, I know that my truth is not the truth, but for me, there is an innate sense I have of what is right and what is wrong. Um, And as you know from our prior conversations, I regard Dr. King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., as the greatest American this country's ever produced. I could debate you on FDR, I could debate you on Abraham Lincoln, a lot of great Americans, but for my money, King is the greatest American we've ever uh, created, ever produced. And so for King, that truth was about justice for all service to others, and a love that liberates people. For King, that truth was trying to get America, and the truth, quite frankly, he was telling was so subversive that we couldn't handle it 50 years ago, but his truth was to get us to deal with what he called the triple threat of racism, poverty, and militarism that was facing our country 50 years ago, and quite frankly, uh, you know, half a century later, still threats to tear this country apart at its very fiber, racism, poverty, and militarism. So that, that in the midst of all that, there are, there are, there's a basic sense, I think, that, 
that most of us still understand and adhere to of what is right and what is wrong. And for me, what is wrong is anything that contests the humanity of another individual. If anybody's humanity is being contested, their humanity, um, not what they think, not what they believe, because we all have different thoughts and beliefs, not the way they see the world, but if your fundamental humanity is being contested in any way, there is a right side of that issue and there's a wrong side of that issue. So for me, a truth can be complicated, but it's not that difficult to get to. Now, I was thinking while you were talking about thinking about Rashomon, you know, the film that, not to sound clunky with a metaphor here, but, you know, it presents multiple truths. So I guess, mm-hmm. you know, my question is, you know, on the road to truth, there can be, as you say, different perspectives. But now it's just a zero-sum game. When did it become yeah. a zero-sum game? <laughs> you know, was it around the time of Dr. King? I mean, Dr. King was such a nuanced thinker. Um, yeah. And he saw everything. He saw like a mosaic of information and presented. To me, you know, he presented the most unifying views on everything he spoke of, you know, in the sense yeah. and it, it was beyond politics. You'll hear people on the right and on the left and in the center praise Dr. King. Sure. But, but but when did it become a zero-sum game? Um, it's not just this yeah. year. It's not just this political cycle. No, you're right. No, We've been, we've been moving toward this for some time now. Um, and again, I think people have just moved away from, some people certainly have moved away from just a basic sense of what is right and what is wrong, mm-hmm. a basic sense of decency, and to the point you're raising now, uh, a basic acceptance of what is fact and what is fiction. And now you have these uh, these alternative facts, as they want to call them, <laughs> yes. uh, which just really don't exist, quite frankly. That's just, it's nonsensical. Uh, but that's what happens when you have a president or, or any particular personality who doesn't want to accept the facts, doesn't want to accept the data, and in this case, uh, the presidency, that is, the president, Donald Trump, you have a spokesperson, Mr. Spicer, coming out when being pressed for facts and being pressed for data, and his response is, his retort is, the president believes what the president believes. I mean, excuse me? The president (laughs) believes what the president believes. That's his quote. Well, at that point, you're not trying to get at truth. Um, you're not trying to distinguish between fact and fiction. Um, you're not trying to deal with what's right and what's wrong. It is ultimately now about the president believing what the president believes, and everybody else is damned to perdition. I just don't think that that's the way to run a country. We're speaking with Tavis Smiley. We're into an interesting space, and when I think of what you do, you know, beyond your own description, we talk a lot on this show about teachers and philosophers, and you know, I was looking into the root of the word philosophy, and it literally means a love of wisdom. You know, uh, philos is the, is the Latin to love. Uh, mm-hmm. Sophia, and if you have any Sophias in your life, you could say that their their name is wisdom. You know, there was a time when we loved wisdom and we loved information. But l- let me ground it in your work for a second. You ask questions on a nightly basis. What are you trying to get at? Are you trying to uh, gather information? to to be a sort of radar for, for a larger group of eyeballs and ears? Yeah. Or is it for your own journey? It's, it's It can be both, certainly. But what is your motor? I think about this because yeah. we talk a lot about I talk to a lot of people as well, and I think about you when I do it. I'm wondering, what is your motor when you ask questions? Doing yeah. it on a daily basis, it can become de rigueur. That's part and parcel yeah. to what we do. But sure. what is your motor? What what get, what get are you searching for in, in those conversations, those daily conversations yeah. you have? I am a lover of wisdom. I am a lover of knowledge. And so first and foremost, uh, I want to learn something. Yeah. Every night on PBS, um, when I say keep the faith, you know, good night, I hope that the audience feels a bit smarter because I do. Every night I am looking to learn something, to be empowered with some information that can help me live a better life and make better choices and be a better man. So one, I'm searching, always in a search for knowledge, always in a search for wisdom. Um, number two, I'm searching for truth. I mean, what, what truth can you tell me today that can enhance my standing, can enhance the way I see the world? So I'm, I'm always in a, search, in a search for truth. And thirdly, I'm trying to always not just respect, but revel in the humanity of that individual Mm -hmm. Um, and getting to that person's humanity, to what makes them tick, to how they see the world, to talk more about what their avocation is. I love talking to artists, as do you. I love talking to artists. The great Paul Robeson said that artists are the gatekeepers of truth, that artists are the gatekeepers of truth. And I, I, I believe that at their best, that's exactly what they are. So now, in this in this critical and crisis moment, we're going to need our artists more than ever before. And so I, I particularly love talking to artists because artists, artists have a way of seeing the world. 
and interpreting the world for us. And so I'm always looking to learn something from whatever they see, whatever they hear, and whether it's in their lyrics, in their in their writings, in their in their in their paintings, in their you know in their creation. I'm always looking to learn something from these artists. Um, trying to see the world a different way, trying to revel and respect their humanity, and ultimately come away with something that I didn't know at the beginning of the conversation. Are, are you an artist, Tavis? I, I, I've been called that, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't run away from that. I mean, <laughs> artist is such a, it's such a high calling. It's such a high calling and such, a, I think, a grand compliment that it's, it, 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 it causes me to blush a bit when someone says that. But I think there is an art um, to what I attempt to do every night. Certainly when I talk to college students, it, it journalism schools and in broadcast uh, curricula um, courses I, I am I am always um, impressed with the questions they ask about my interview style about my technique and what I tell them very very simply Robert is that the best TV personalities the persons who are the best uh, at at hosting conducting conversations and moderating uh, discussions the persons who are the best are the persons who listen generously mm-hmm. that's the trick yeah. that's the key the yeah. more generously you listen uh, the more charitably you listen the better you are we we tend to think of talk show hosts you know robert in this case or tavis on pbs we tend to think of hosts as persons who are leading a conversation and that's really not true if you're doing your job you're not leading you're following because you're listening to what the guest has to say. And if you listen charitably, if you listen generously to what the guest has to say, they will lead you the next step of the way. Um, as opposed to, you know, I tell young folks all the time, there's a difference between an interview and a conversation. Yes. I don't like interviews. Yes. I want a conversation, <laughs> which means it's, 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 it's authentic and it's organic. An interview is, I got a blue card with 10 questions on it, and whatever you say, I'm going to ask you my next question. I'm not really listening to what right. you're saying. I'm just trying to get through my list of 10 questions. That's an interview. I believe in conducting conversations, and conversations like the one we're having now, they're organic, they're authentic, and it just flows. But it's about generous listening. I, I was rifling through some photos. We, Tavis and I did an event. He was gracious to give us some time. And all the photos of you are of you listening. It's really extraordinary. You're, you're listening, and, and it was frustrating because, you know, they're not great for publicity. That's a joke. I mean, the, you're, li- you're listening intently, whether it's an audience question or to me. Um, there are times, and I, you know, you do it on a molecular level. You have guests every night, and there may be people that you have to have as part of a press run for a guest. Um, right. I'm going to guide people to this one particular interview you did, and it's not to name names, but you did a fascinating interview with uh, Twyla Tharp, and it seemed like that mm-hmm. drew you up into that up to, to that line of what, what have you, that other place. But yeah. w- w- when you're challenged, not listening, but when you're challenged by a guest where do you where does your voice come in that's a great question and i recall that trying to uh, try to talk interview like it was yesterday yeah speaking of great artists she's a great artist she is but i, I think what i what, what what annoyed me about that conversation and she finally turned the corner after i had to you know she did i say this lovingly but as we say in my in, in the gym sometimes you got to chin check people <laughs> and i would never speak of, of violence against a woman but no. once we once i had to you know had to check her. I think she 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 came out of that funk she was in. And see, my thing is, to answer your question, I never know what people are going through before they get on my set. Yeah. I never know what yeah. they're going to have to deal with when they leave the set. Yeah. I don't know what the, my show's a late night show. I don't know what their day has been like before they get to me, um, or what what's happening in their world they have to go right back to once they jump off this set. So I don't even know if they're always present in that moment. My job is to try to steal the guests, to steal them. S-T-I-L-L, to steal them, to calm them, to get them to hone in on this conversation. Because for me, at that moment, talking to Twyla Tharp or any guest, there's nothing else in the world more important than that. My staff, I have like eight divisions. I have a book company, and I've got a speaker's bureau, and I've got a foundation, and I've got a TV show and a radio show, and a ton of other <laughs> things I'm engaged in. I deal with Warner Brothers for movies and TV shows. But everybody on my staff knows when I'm on my set, I don't receive phone calls from anybody else in my company. I don't care what is going on. Right. Those calls wait. Those emails wait until the end of the day. Do not bother me when I'm on my set doing yeah. my show. Yeah. And I say that because I want to be in that moment. I don't want to be distracted. So I don't know. I know I'm not distracted. But I don't know what everybody else who I'm talking to that day as I tape may be distracted it's, by. It's, and yeah. so I don't, I don't know what was on her mind that day, but it was like everything. The, the worst 
conversations in the world are conversations where you're getting monosyllabic responses. Mm. I, yes. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. yes, no, thank you, right. maybe, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I can't work with that. And yeah. I'm, I'm asking, I'm trying to, she's such a brilliant artist, yeah. I'm trying to get into into the sweet spot of what, what motivates you, what drives you, you know, um, and, and she wasn't giving me anything. And at one point I just said to her, I basically said, why are you here? I mean, why are you giving me such a hard time? I mean, do you not want to talk? Because I didn't beg you to come on the show. You booked yourself on the show. So if you don't want to be here, you don't want to talk, then why are you wasting your time and my time? I had the same experience, not for, I mean, for, in a, it came out in a different way. Harrison Ford didn't have anything oh, yeah. against me. He wasn't a funky or foul mood, per se. Yeah. Harrison Ford just doesn't like doing interviews. No, but he keeps doing them, which defies any it, gravity of what you're saying. I totally agree with what you're saying. I'm sorry. Go on, please. Yeah. No, he doesn't like doing interviews. And so I just said to him one day, he came on, and I could tell by his body language, he leaned back in the chair, he crossed his leg, he leaned back away from me. I had never met him at that time, my first time meeting him, but he agreed to come on the show. But I could tell he was not. He did not want to be there. His, his, his body language, his mood said everything. Yeah. And after the first couple of questions, I could see this was going to go. This was going nowhere. So I said to Harrison Ford, I said, I said, you know, I I had I had heard before you came on the show tonight that you were a tough interview, and he perked up. Mm-hmm. I said I heard you were a tough interview, and not because you're you know I don't know you, not because you're a mean guy. Everybody says you're a great guy to work with. So I've heard all these great stories about what a great colleague you are to work with on the set, but but those persons who've ever interviewed you, everybody says you're a horrible interview. You're a really tough interview. And I said, I'm having a hard time juxtaposing the nice guy on the set with a guy who doesn't like to do these interviews. And furthermore, if you don't like to do them, why do you do them? Right. If you don't want to be here, then why, why what, what is it that, what is it that, let me just ask you this, Harrison, what is it that you don't like about doing these interviews? Great question. What do you, what do you hate about doing interviews? And that, Robert, was the magic question. Great question, yeah. Because it gave him a chance to open a second. And he leaned up, he got in my face, and says, I'll tell you what I hate about doing interviews. Yeah. And when, he, when, when I hit him with that, man, the floodgates opened up. And he wouldn't shut up for the rest of the show. <laughs> he started talking. He opened up because he realized I didn't have an axe to grind with the guy. I, I was really curious. Yeah. Why do you hate these interviews? And you know what his answer essentially was? Because I get asked stupid questions. <laughs> Everybody wants to talk about Calista and the relationship. Right. They don't want to talk about my work. They don't want to talk about this, that, or the other. I said, well, I don't care about Calista. I mean, I don't, I don't know her, but I want to talk about the movie and about your process and your this and that. He said, well, then we can have a great conversation. I said, well, let's go. And we took off and the rest of this his history. He's been back many times since then. We're speaking with Tavis Smiley, and it's interesting. It's it's a couple of different syndromes we're dealing with. You know, it's almost it's almost a, a, a beaten um, a pet syndrome. You don't know who's abusing yes. these people, <laughs> as you say. But it's funny. You know, a colleague, a, a different colleague, a friend actually said to me, and he's a therapist, mind you. And he said, "The way I treat my patients is no one's been in here before you, and no one will be in here after you." Love it. it leads me to another question in, in therapy that therapy doesn't begin until you argue with your therapist. Now, let's let's frame that up. Let's let's square that up a little bit with interviews. I'm not saying, you know, we have to disagree to get to something, but and maybe the Harrison Ford story is a, it was a little bit of that. You, there, there was a kind of in, uh, a friction that was caused. Is there value in disagreeing? Oh, that's absolutely. There's great value in, in disagreement. In, in short, it's what I said earlier. When there's disagreement, or even tension, it causes you to re-examine the assumptions you hold. Right. And ultimately, it helps you expand your inventory of ideas, but only if you don't take that stuff personally. I never take any of that stuff personally. As I said, I don't know what people have endured before they got to me. I don't know what's going on in their world. They may not want to be here. Sometimes the studio is making them do this to promote the film. They really don't want to do it. Uh, and my job is to try to, again, my job is to try to get at their humanity, try to find that sweet spot that will get them to open up. Um, so for me, as long as I don't take that, that tension or that disagreement personally, then there's something I'm going to learn from that. One of two things is going to happen. If I don't take it personally, I'm either going to learn something again and have my own assumptions reexamined, um, or I'm going to discover that what I think about this issue is right and they are right. wrong. So it's only, going to, it's only going to reinforce my belief system, or it's going to challenge me to reexamine my belief system and make me a smarter, better person. There are only two outcomes. I'm either going to be conf- I'm going to conf- it's going to confirm what I already believe, or it's going to get me to see the world through a different prism. Either way, I win. Mm. You know, this M word, this media word, uh, is now in, in the crosshairs. Are you yeah. are you part of the media? <laughs> 
I am. I can't deny that. Um, <laughs> I'm a broadcaster. I can't deny that. And I, but I have been on record so many times over the last two years expressing my disappointment at the profession and the way that we have been complicit in so much what's happening in our country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you, you once uh, deflected this, not deflected, you sort of said, I'm not a journalist. So what's the difference yeah, between not, a, a yeah. journalist and, and someone in the media? What is what is? Yeah, I'm a, I'm, a broad, I'm, clearly, I'm, I'm a broadcaster, no doubt about that. I'm a talk show host. And, but the difference is, if I, I said what I said in that interview was, if I'm not a journalist, but if, if people insist on calling me a journalist, they have to call me an advocacy journalist. Right. In the tradition of W.E.B. Du Bois, in the tradition of Monroe Trotter, in the tradition of Ida B. Wells Barnett, I am an advocacy journalist. That is to say, I do have a point of view. And unlike most of these folk who have a point of view and try to hide it from you, I'm going to tell you what I think. Because yeah. I'm not paid to be a newsreader. I am not, you know, I'm not, I am not Walter Cronkite. I am not Peter Jennings. I am not, that's not what I do. Uh, my job is not to read the news. My job is to try to interpret the news in conversations that, again, Put forth ideas that help you see the world through a different, uh, in a different way, and hopefully a more enlightened, more empowered way. So I've never, I've never accepted the label of journalist because there are certain standards. I mean, I, I'm, I'm all about the truth, mm. um, but this notion of me not expressing to you uh, a point of view um, that I think can make the country better, or me not speaking up when something is dead wrong, like for me, there's no way I could be a newsreader. I couldn't be a news anchor in this moment. I have nothing against news anchors. Somebody's got to give us the news. I love Lester Holt. He's a friend, does a great job. Yeah. But I am not the kind of guy who can sit and just read the news to you about Donald Trump. I can't do that. I have to I have to help you interpret that and help you understand and see where he is contesting the humanity of fellow citizens. I have to I have to say something about the racism and the poverty and the militarism that's 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 destroying this country. I have to say something about the poverty that's run amok in this country. I have to say something about climate change and whether we really care about our planet, and when we don't, what that means. I just can't read the news. I'm happy to interpret it, but I just can't read it. So for me, the label journalist has never worked. So again, if people want, want to call me a journalist, and oftentimes they do, I say, you know what? I'll, I'll cop to that so long as you say advocacy journalist, but I prefer just being called a, a broadcaster or a truth teller, or you can call me an advocate. I really don't care. I've been called worse. Just don't call me <laughs> late for dinner, Robert. That's all. You know, it's funny. Um, we're we're in that awful award season in in, in my industry uh, or and in our industry. Sure. Um, and I was thinking about this. The SAG Awards were the other night, and uh, right. Mahershala Ali, great actor, was in Moonlight, beautiful film. I, I, mm-hmm. I think you're about to interview Barry Jenkins, or you did. Uh, yeah, he's on. What is, what is today? Today I is uh, think he's Tuesday. On tomorrow, Thursday, I think he's on. Today's Tuesday, so he's on the show uh, tonight. Is uh, Tuesday night is Dick Van Dyke with a tribute to Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, how cool! And then Wednesday night is Barry Jenkins. From Moonlight and Friday night is Raul Peck on Friday, my favorite documentary of the year. I am not your Negro, the James Bond oh, documentary. What an amazing film! Yeah, my favorite, amazing work, yeah. my favorite of the year too. Another slow week yeah. for Tavis Smiley. You know, <laughs> Mahershala, when he won his award, took that moment and talked about his mom and talked about it's beautiful, gorgeous. Now he's a Muslim, and he also said his mom didn't do backflips when right. he converted. But what do you think about that form? You know, actors and filmmakers especially, they they take a pounding, you know, whether sure. it's Meryl Streep or whomever, to take that moment to advocate for something. Do you, do you yeah. think Do you think it's their, I mean, it's our purview as human beings to say what we want when we want it. But sure. when, when someone who it's not their traditional pedigree wheelhouse sphere, I guess we're all drawn into that now, but w- yeah. when an actor, let's locate it with actor, when an actor or an artist says something publicly at an award show, yeah. well, how does that hit your ear? Just said earlier, uh, quoting Paul Robeson, I believe that artists, uh, as Robeson did, artists are the gatekeepers of truth. Um, I think that sometimes, um, these speeches don't come across as sincere to me. Mr. Ali certainly did. Sometimes they don't come across as sincere. Sometimes they come across as self-serving. Sometimes they come across as not being rooted in much of anything. Um, But I think when it's earnest, all I can say is I can't give anybody advice on how to handle their moment. What I know is that what comes from the heart reaches the heart. What comes from the heart reaches the heart. And if whatever you're expressing, whatever you're expressing it, whatever you're expressing and wherever you're expressing, if it comes from the heart, then I believe it reaches the heart. Having said that, I do believe um, that um, that if it isn't sincere, people people sort of see through that. 
I believe that, that you, Robert, myself, that all of us, each of us, we have to be who we are anywhere that we are. Mm-hmm. You have to be who you are wherever you are. And sometimes I see people get up and do the speechifying, and that doesn't seem to be consistent with who they are in any other space. So if you're only doing it for ratings or to get some applause, then I have a problem with that. And you didn't ask this question, but let me take it the other direction. I was disturbed by Madonna and her dropping the F-bomb three or four times Mm. at the Women's March the other day and closing her speech by telling Donald Trump to go suck, you know, an anatomical body part. Um, I, I, I was I was not impressed with that. That was I mean, first of all, you have you have all of these parents who are bringing their kids to this march, and the mantra that the left used during the campaign when Trump did all this crazy stuff was that our kids are watching. Well, I remind my friends on the left that our kids are watching. If they're watching Trump, then they're watching you. And when you step up and you do stuff like that, this it's clearly just about getting attention. So I don't respect Madonna for doing that. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can you can say what you say, you can express what you want to express, and all of that isn't necessary. And I'm not a Puritan. I'm not trying to put labels on people. I'm all for free speech. I'm just saying that if the argument is that our kids are watching Trump, then our kids are not watching us. That's that's nonsense. Yeah. So there's got to be a way to express ourselves where people can hear what we have to say. But when I see people do stuff like that, just because I mean, Madonna knew she was live on every freaking TV network. Yeah. She knew there were kids at that march. She's a mother. She has kids. That to me is just nonsensical. That I don't respect. Even though I celebrate her being there, I celebrate. I'm with her on the issue. But sometimes I see people just pushing the envelope for the sake of pushing the envelope, and I, I'm just not impressed with it. The messenger matters, uh, Mr. Smiley. Is is to me the most eloquent modern messenger, uh, philosopher-like to me. And I would just, one small coda, if you'd allow me, Mr. Smiley. You know, I was thinking about this. It's a beautiful interview you did with Prince. And I know Prince is someone not only you respect, but you called friend and he called you friend. You know, when the people you've met and encountered start to pass... What do you, what do you think? What what is you know we're, we're in this weird social we eulogize everything and again I think it's a form of narcissism. I'm going to eulogize yeah. simply to eulogize. I think your bullshit meter is pretty sharp. Mine is too. But yeah. what do you think about when the people you've interviewed in your life? What do you, what is what what is the reflection? Do you go back yeah. to? Oh, I remember that time I met Prince and this sure. occurred to me. Is is it especially sanguine for you when these? people you've talked yeah. to in your life past? Not to sound melancholy in our last no. note here. Sanguine. Sanguine's a great word, and the word that I was would use uh, to answer your question is simply gratitude. Mm. It's gratitude, Robert. I am grateful for every moment that I have with these persons who have enriched my lives in innumerable ways. I'm grateful for every conversation I have with Prince. I'm grateful for every con- every concert I went to. I'm grateful for every backstage and green room experience. I'm grateful for every plane ride, grateful for every place outside the country we traveled together just to support him and to watch him do his thing. I'm grateful for the knowledge he gave me, grateful for the gifts he gave me, just grateful. So when I, when I, when I lose these persons that have impacted my life i i find myself more and more trying to 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 stay and to still myself in a place of gratitude somebody told me years ago robert that gratitude is the gateway to greatness mm-hmm. that gratitude is the gateway to greatness and if you would be great in whatever your calling or purpose of vocation is in the world if you would be great Root yourself in gratitude. The more grateful you are, the greater your chances of succeeding at whatever it is that you do. And so I just want to stay in the place of gratitude, so whether it's Prince or Ozzie Davis or Ruby D or, oh, my God, so many other persons over the last few years that I've, you know, Glenn Fry. I mean, I think about all these persons over the last year and years I've had on my show as guests. I mean, I mentioned that Dick Van Dyke is our guest Tuesday night in a tribute to Mary Tyler Moore. I never interviewed Mary Tyler Moore, but I was a big fan of hers, loved her work. Amazing. But I've been so fortunate over the over the years of my career to become a friend of Dick Van Dyke. And so I get a chance to – so when I saw him for the taping we did yesterday that were aired tonight, I just gave him a big hug because I never know when the last time is he's going to see me or I'll see him. Yeah. But it's just when you lose these icons, it makes you just grateful for the space that you do occupy. And so I, I just thanked him profusely yesterday for – 
all the times he's honored me by coming on my program and choosing my space as a platform to talk about Mary Tyler Moore. But again, it's just, I could go on and on, on, but the, the short answer is it's gratitude. And um, before honor, a friend of mine told me years ago, before honor comes humility. So if you, if you would be honored, um, then be humble. And if you would be, if you would be great, then be, then, be, then be gracious, be grateful. And that's all I can tell you, brother. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. They say the difference between an angel and a devil is when a devil leaves you, they've taken something. When an angel leaves you, they've left something. Thank you for leaving yeah. us all your gifts, man. And we, you are we're, the we're best, gonna, Robert. I appreciate you, man. We're, we're huge fans, and we're pulling for you, and we're right behind you, whatever you need. Appreciate you, and I love you like a fat kid loves cake. Do you like our all? It's artificial. Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. I'm Rachel. Deckard. It seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? No. But in your position, that is a risk. Is this to be an empathy test? Capillary dilation of the so-called blush response? Fluctuation of the pupil? Involuntary dilation of the iris? We call it Void Comp for sure. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. Demonstrate it. I want to see it work. Where's the subject? I want to see it work on the person. I want to see a negative before I provide it a positive. What's that going to prove? Indulge me. On you? Try her. Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. It's your birthday. Someone gives you a calfskin wallet. I wouldn't accept it. Also, I'd report the person who gave it to me to the police. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, plus the killing jar. I take him to the doctor. You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. You show it to your husband. He likes it so much, he hangs it on your bedroom wall. I wouldn't let him. Why not? I should be in there for him. One more question. You're watching a stage play. A banquet is in progress. The guests are enjoying an appetizer of raw oysters. The entree consists of boiled dog. Would you step out for a few moments, Rachel? Thank you. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. So, uh, when Errol Morris, the filmmaker, does a documentary, uh, he does a lot of talking heads in his documentaries, he... he um, contrived a device he calls the Interatron. It's a really amazing device. It wouldn't work here because it relies on, I guess it would work here, but it relies on people seeing one another. It's, um, 
what it is, it's essentially a camera that sits behind a two-way mirror and the camera films the subject being interviewed or interrogated. <laughs> I hope, I mean, I don't think we interrogate people here, but, and in that two-way mirror, the subject sees the questioner's face because on the other end of that system, of that circuit, there's a camera filming Errol and they see one another essentially. It's two, essentially two teleprompters, but the teleprompters are, are facial prompters. They, they see one another's faces in the in the prompt. So um, what it does visually is it takes, you know, a lot of times documentaries, the eyeline of the subject tends to wander and dip in and out. And in Errol's films, which is really interesting, it's a straight ahead eyeline. So the subject is looking at the camera looking at the, through the screen, looking at the audience directly. So you simply feel you are the interviewer, the interatron. And it's something you can build that's not too complex a rig. It's kind of a cool idea, and I wish... I'd like to try it. I mean, I think, you know, interviews, eye contact, you know, we don't get that here because we're on the phone, and that that's a whole different conversation. Talking on the phone, it's a whole different conversation. But I guess what I was struck by with what Tavis was saying is he is an interpreter of truth and in that interpretation he delivers to his constituents his listeners so he's getting he's trying to get at a truth at a truth and interpret that truth so he's not simply going to receive the truth he is going to receive it and deconstruct it and that's his truth so it straddles a line of subjective, objective, advocacy, detective work. What's interesting about what Tavis does, and we, well, let me reverse that. What I do is I try to get to that so I can display it as education, as information, because you know we're the modern school of film here on Murmur, so we want to get this information and we want people to listen to it because we consider everyone a student. So we are so immodest to suggest that the information from our guests is worthwhile. Now, when I started doing these, I used to think it was worthwhile only if you were attempting to be a practitioner of arts. I've since realized or actually realized quite quickly that it's beyond that it's it's a stimulation it's an educational synaptic stimulation that can lead to anything you know we'd like to think people who listen to us can do anything and do anything and and are from different fields and that's why we like to bring in different guests to articulate but the common vocabulary is emotion is emotion you know motion pictures and music and so there's a common vocabulary but we like to think the byproduct is universals beyond that. I I can't help but interpret what I'm what I'm hearing in my. I mean, my questions become an interpretation. Become you know, it's like taking a block of marble and and carving a statue. So yes, you're carving it, but what your hand determines as its truth. You know, the the communication between your 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 physical your corporeal your corporeal corporeal sorry your body and your brain that 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 relationship is subjective but you know people like Michelangelo and other artists Renaissance artists believe that they were a conduit for higher powers I don't think that but it's impossible to ask a question and stay objective a question is editorial I'm choosing what to say and how to say it, and when to stop saying it. There's more to say on truth and interviewing and subjectivity and objectivity, and uh, every film is a documentary. Every interview is a piece of fiction, thankfully. <laughs> uh, and we are also happy to be able to deliver our information to you weekly at WHUPLP and 24-7 via iTunes, Google, and Stitcher. We will be in Boston March 1st with Glenn Hansard talking movies and music. March 1st, go to modernschoolfilm.com for tickets. BoweryBoston.com for tickets March 1st. 
We'd love to see you there. We'd love to hear you here. Email us. We'll see you again.